1: Uh, We have a mystery guest this week.
2: Ooh. We do.
1: Sitting here bound and gagged in the corner.
2: Getting kinky here on the Rational (laughs) Security Podcast. (laughs) Well, we don't have Susan, so I thought... It's a
1: rendition. We can't identify the mystery guest. Yeah. And we can't talk about him or her in a way that gives sufficient context clues so that people could figure out who's joining us today. But we assure you it's a really good mystery guest. Yeah. And we're going to leave it mysterious. But we'll, we'll make <laughs> repeated references to the person over the course of the show.
2: Maybe we can describe our mystery guest's facial expressions in reaction to the podcast. <laughs> He's looking,
1: looking disgusted right now.
2: He or she is looking disgusted right and now. And
1: drinking scotch, though. The mystery <laughs> guest brought us a very nice bottle, bottle of Talisker. That's nice. Yeah.
0: Let's not, let's not test mystery guest's patience because <laughs> we want to keep the scotch. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the should he stay or should he go edition. I'm Shane Harris, not referring to the mystery guest. That's a reference to Bill Barr, to be clear.
2: To be clear. and Mystery guest,
0: he or she should definitely stay right here.
1: And (laughs) disguised as Susan Hennessy.
0: Correct. (laughs) (laughs) The mystery guest is actually Susan. She'll be coming in the third segment. (laughs) Just to piss everyone off. Uh, no, but I am here in the Jungle Studio with my good friends Tamara Coffin and Ben Wittis. Hi, guys. Hey, Hi, Shane. and I, the mystery
1: guest. I don't know where Susan is. Susan is in uh, Pennsylvania. Oh, that's not exotic. Ask why Susan is in Pennsylvania. Why is Susan in Pennsylvania?
0: I don't know. Oh,
2: it's, it's a swing state, though. It is. It's it is. a good place to visit.
0: Tammy, you always have the most exotic locales where you are. When <laughs> yeah, you cannot be I was
2: in Cleveland last week. That's oh, but you're like in
0: Jordan, you? or you're like in Riyadh, or Cleveland.
2: Yeah. <laughs> It's all just one big blur.
0: It's 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 good. It's good. Well, we're glad we're all here together. Um, on the podcast this week, Bill Barr, reference to our title, says that Trump's tweets make his job more difficult and he has considered resigning over them. But Trump is still tweeting and Barr is still the attorney general. So
2: poor baby.
1: We got so in there. Yeah. Well, but, but we, at least we didn't.
2: At the end. The, we, it's at, at the, the end,
0: end of the yeah. sentence this time. Take that. Who was the guy who made the graphic about this? I don't remember, but that person was awesome. He was was pretty good. Also, the U.S. charges Chinese telecom giant Huawei with conspiracy and racketeering, and European leaders are bracing for a second Trump term and a redefined relationship with America. Um, So let's start with Bill Barr. There's there's too many news threads to sort of wrap into one neat little package here, but Ben – Kind of bouncing off the comments that Bill Barr made, uh, which I think probably most listeners of the podcast saw, to Pierre Thomas at ABC News, where he said that, yes, Trump tweeting makes his job at the Justice Department more difficult. There was some question initially if he was doing this in coordination with the White House to sort of give a plausible deniability or cover to the president's tweeting about all manner of things, but most recently, I guess, about the Roger Stone case. Uh, And then Trump kind of gave Barr a brushback, I thought, in a tweet where he said, you know, basically, I can do whatever I want. And just because I haven't done certain things doesn't mean that I won't. I have the right to do it. I have the right, the God-given right. And Barr has reportedly said that he might quit over the tweets. We reported that in the post and CNN confirmed that reporting. So based on what we know right now, what do you think is the dynamic that's actually at play between the President and the Attorney general
1: so I'm gonna take a a wildly simplistic view of this and say that I think there's actually no reason to think that the dynamic is other than the public one, which is that Donald Trump wants to tweet in a way that makes it impossible for Bill Barr to do his job credibly. And Bill Barr, who is willing to do all kinds of, in my view, quite outrageous things uh, to support the president's agenda with respect to investigations, doesn't want to be made to look like a complete toady in doing so. And so actually, genuinely and sincerely, objects to right when he's intervening in Uh, a pending criminal matter to get a lighter sentence for a presidential crony like Roger Stone doesn't appreciate it when the president issues a tweet that seems to order him to do what he apparently meant to do anyway. And so I, I don't really believe that there's some secret dynamic that's playing out here. I think it's basically that Bill Barr is doing exactly what he says he's doing he's trying to run these investigations in a fashion that is maximally advantageous to trump and he doesn't appreciate the way trump is pulling the mask off of that and making it seem you know as corrupt and inappropriate as it in fact is well what do you think is the
0: explanation so far as we can divine any explanation for when Trump tweets and why he tweets, as to why he hasn't perhaps pushed back harder against the AG. Because if what you're saying is true, and I should say I, I agree with your assessment of it, I think that what you see is what you get in this situation. Why hasn't the president just shut bar down? Because it seems like that is very much a challenge to the president's authority. I mean, if he's coming out and saying essentially to the president, you know, stifle it, uh, you're making my job harder. Should we assume that Trump
1: is ready to take Barr's head over this? Or why has he been so reserved? I, I think Trump, first of all, likes Bill Barr. And I think Barr in- his, Well, he should, right? Yes, absolutely. In his pugilistic loyalty, Barr is actually something like Trump's uh, vision of what an attorney general should be. And Barr has done a lot of the things that Jeff Sessions, from Trump's point of view, wouldn't do by way of, A, protecting me and, me being Trump, and be going after my enemies. Um, you know, the Durham investigation is a very cool thing from Trump's point of view. And so I think, you know, Trump seems to genuinely like Barr and like what he's done at the Justice Department. But here, Barr is making a demand on Trump that Trump, that actually would meaningfully impair the way Trump behaves on a matter that Trump cares a great deal about that he thinks has electoral consequences. And it is actually Barr who's being the aggressor here. You know, Barr's saying, stop doing what you're doing that you think works for you, or I might quit. And, you know, I, I think there was a great line in the Post story yesterday that I am i don't remember in d- verbatim, but it basically says, you know, Trump's behavior has been uh, you know, hard to curtail, right? There's it's it's written in this delightful understatement. Trump has shown resistance <laughs> to having his behavior modified. We and, specialize
0: in understatement.
1: Yeah, it was it was a it was a deliciously understated line. And you know, I think what's happened here is Barr is making a demand that Trump simply will not comply with, and that actually creates a confrontation uh, that you know I don't actually think Trump wants here.
2: I actually think that you are making way too much of this apparent confrontation. I don't think that there is a meaningful confrontation going on here. I think that there are two things going on, both of which we have seen several times before in this administration uh, related to people who are working with the president or even serving under the president. Barr has his own identity, his own legacy, his own reputation. He got confirmed by the Senate on the basis of that reputation under very challenging circumstances. And Trump in his constant public spiking of the football, which he does about everything, is undermining Barr's sense of his own personal credibility with the people who put him into this office in the U.S. Senate and more broadly in the public or the conservative movement. I don't know. Barr has a sense of who he is independent of Trump. And it bothers him that Trump's public behavior is undermining that. So he's seeking to preserve some semblance of independent credibility by letting it be known that he's not happy about this. But is this a confrontation? No. He doesn't expect Trump to take it seriously. Trump doesn't care about Barr's reputation and Trump also doesn't care that Barr is criticizing this behavior publicly. There was a really interesting, revealing quote from Lindsey Graham, of all people, in a David Ignatius column this week in a totally different context. But talking about Trump, Graham said, I want him to be successful. He will tolerate criticism if he thinks you want him to succeed. And I think we have plenty of evidence for Mm. that proposition President Trump knows that Bill Barr wants him to succeed and that Barr is doing the things that Trump wants him to do, as you noted. And so fine. Barr can say some crap. It doesn't matter. The president's going to – this is like – it's more about Barr trying to preserve some fig leaf than it is actually trying to affect the president's behavior.
1: So I don't think that's right. Um, First of all, as I said, I don't think that the problem – in the relationship right now is on Trump's side. I don't. I agree with you that Trump doesn't really mind probably what Barr is doing. So but then I think, there's
2: no confrontation. No,
1: but I think Barr minds very much what Trump is doing. And the reason is that he's got a rebellion going on, a, a kind of mutiny inside the Justice Department. Very large numbers of people are very upset. And the perception that he is doing Trump's bidding, which has a significant element of truth, is driving that rebellion. And what Trump is doing is exacerbating Barr's internal. Morale problem, his internal loss of credibility, and the internal perception that he is nothing more than a political hatchet man for the president. That is extremely damaging for Barr. And so, though these are messages that he's projecting out through the press, in fact, I think they are principally aimed at internal voices within the department. And it is not an accident that the the thing that came out through the post story immediately followed 2,000 former Justice Department officials signing that letter calling on Barr to resign. So I think from, you may be correctly describing Trump's side of this relationship. I think you are, but I don't think you're giving adequate uh, attention to Barr's side of the relationship, which is at this point very fraught.
0: So let me ask then, just listening to both of you talk and say what you're going to say, but respond to this idea too, that we've talked a lot on the podcast about whether Bill Barr cares about his sort of broader reputation because so many of his colleagues are Repulsed by what he 's done have been so highly critical of the way that he 's behaved, and you know I think where we 've come down is basically you know bill Barr you know doesn 't give to you know what's and he's he 's doing what Bill Barr does, but to your point, Ben, it seems like what he does care a lot about is effectively managing the department while he is the attorney general, and that he feels that he can 't do that. If he's facing some kind of internal opposition to the way that he behaves, which, if that's true, suggests that he crossed some kind of line here that was too much even for you know his usual critics, and that he realized he'd gotten too close to the fire on 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 this one and that he had to do something that might look like salvaging his reputation but is actually much more tactical of sort of like taking control of the ship again that he felt like was getting away from him.
2: Well, so that's an interesting point. And you too may be right that he's more concerned with managing the department or with politics inside the department than he is with his broader reputation. But I guess- only would... insofar so
0: far as it lets him do what he needs to do in the moment.
2: Yeah. Okay. But if that's what's going on, then his saying, hey, Mr. President, would you quit publicly speaking about the ways in which I am acting at your behest inside the Justice Department, I don't really see how that helps him address that internal problem. If the internal problem is that he is allowing political variables to shape his decision making and his role as attorney general and enforcing that on a Justice Department that culturally and organizationally and normatively is not supposed to be operating that way, I don't see how the fig leaf of Trump not tweeting about it really helps.
1: Here's how. But what Barr did last week in the Stone case was the second time he did it. The first time he did it was the Mike Flynn case. And it did not provoke an uprising in the Justice Department. Last week, he did it in the Stone case, and it did provoke an uprising in the Justice Department. What is the difference? The difference is the president tweeted right before he did it, boy you should back off this crazy brief and it is the perception combined with the re- you know the withdrawal of the four prosecutors in question the perception that he was responding directly to presidential political pressure which may or may not be in a literal sense right that was immensely different from the previous time he had done effectively the exact same thing and so It really meaningfully affects how many degrees of freedom he has in conducting what like let's remember the baseline is is corrupt and inappropriate activity on his part or if not corrupt then certainly you know inappropriate activity on his part. He has a management problem the more the president talks about it in immediate proximity to what he's doing. And that's actually what he said on ABC. He said, the president is making it impossible for me to do my
2: job. I think he meant it. Okay, so two questions, I guess. One is, to what extent might he be concerned not only about managing inside his building, But about judges and what they see, I mean, that perception problem ultimately is a problem for judges who have to decide how to treat these filings from the Justice Department. So how much of an issue is that, number one? And number two, you know, in the context of managing the department, how significant is it that he's now brought in this person to go back through everything the D.C. office did on the Flynn case and others?
1: Look. On your first question, it's you know funny you should ask because just yesterday, with uh Charlotte Butash, I wrote this piece analyzing what defense lawyers could do with the with the brief that Barr had filed in the Stone case? And the answer is quite a lot. They articulated some pretty broad principles that any defendant is now entitled to say the Justice Department took this position in a different case. And I would be very surprised if you do not see defense lawyers around the country start filing what we will come to call Stone briefs, which which basically say, hey, Applying the logic that the Justice Department urged on the court in stone, my client should get a. And that will be deeply embarrassing for Bill Barr if judges start actually granting those, you know, or taking such things into account. And it should be embarrassing to him because, in fact, the Justice Department shouldn't be urging its defense lawyers job to earn to, you know, say, hey, there are some mitigating factors here as a general matter. The Justice Department's job, normally speaking, is to say, look, here's what the guidelines suggest. Here are some aggravating factors. That's their job. And so I, I do think there is a mechanism by which judges get involved, and the intervening mechanism is when defense lawyers get involved, and I expect that to happen pretty quickly. There are a lot of defense lawyers around who for whom the stone brief is a a very novel position for the Justice Department to take, and I think they are likely to try to exploit it. The answer to your second question— how unusual is it for the Justice Department to review its own work? Not unusual at all. How unusual is it for the Justice Department to set up a series of individual processes to second guess? an investigation that the president has repeatedly criticized in the face of no actual reason to second guess the judgments of that, that investigation. Totally unusual. And he's done this now in a series of areas, you know, as well as creating a special process for Rudy Giuliani to funnel dirt on the Bidens through, of all places, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Pittsburgh. And when you put it all together, it is very hard to imagine that what's happening here is anything other than Bill Barr you know trying to design internal justice department bureaucratic systems that will. At least procedurally satisfy Trump and maybe substantively yield results that will substantively satisfy Trump. I don't see how to avoid that conclusion. It's interesting to me that the place that he's drawing the line is when Trump basically announces that. You know, congratulations to Bill Barr for these, these processes that he's putting in place. That's where he gets upset. Bill Barr is saying, help me help you. Exactly. Don't buy the Cadillac after we knock over the jewelry
0: store. (laughs) It's very simple. (laughs) Why does I have to explain this to you so many times? (laughs) All right. Um, Speaking of the Justice Department, DOJ has issued multiple indictments against Huawei. I like to say Huawei. Huawei.
1: Huawei.
2: Cool whip. I have a feeling we could all work on that all day long and never say it correctly. Do, yeah, do sure. we?
1: Do we, as a collective, have contempt for people who say Huawei?
2: No. Not
0: necessarily, but I prefer Huawei. 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 Cool whip.
2: <laughs> cool whip? Really? Cool whip. Cool whip. Cool
0: whip. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. There are certain Family Guy fans in the audience who are pumping their fists. Yeah, right
2: all right.
1: Will you have... Cool whip with, with your Huawei?
0: Sure. Any day. Anytime. <laughs> our,
2: our unnamed guest appreciates your family <laughs> guide, Jim.
1: Mystery, guest, mystery is, guest is suddenly
0: activated and is writing something. It's <laughs> saying, wheat thing? Wheat th- Wheat thins. <laughs> Wheat thing. Wheat wheat thins. All right. No more scotch for you guys. Multiple (laughs) indictments. Yeah, sure. Fill me up. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so the Justice Department has issued multiple indictments against wheat thins. I'm reading from the New York Times lead on this. In a federal indictment and sealed on Thursday in the Eastern District of New York, the Department of Justice accused Huawei and its affiliates of, quote, a pattern of racketeering activity and said the companies had worked to steal trade secret secrets from six American firms. The stolen information included source code as well as the manuals for wireless technology, which is obviously of key importance here, being that Huawei is the Chinese telecom giant building the sort of modern wireless uh, digital networks uh around the globe uh, and has been obviously the main source of friction between the US and allies over whether they will use that equipment. Uh, Continuing from the story, the indictment did not specify the six companies, but a source familiar with the investigation said they were Cisco Systems, Motorola, Fujitsu, Quintel, T-Mobile, and Cinex Labs. So basically- All of them. All of them. them. All of them. All the big ones. All the companies. Um, So Tammy, question for you. This is obviously not the first time the US has gone after Chinese companies in courts or Chinese officials or individual hackers or officers in the PLA, and this is- clearly happening amidst a broader campaign to pressure Huawei, but also U.S. allies, principally the U.K., who are using Huawei's products. So in that context, how should we be thinking about what the U.S. is trying to do with these particular charges?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And the answer is I'm not sure. I think that they are trying to do more than one thing at once in policy terms. And I'm not sure how successful they can be. But, you know, there, there are sort of two simultaneous issues here. One is corporate espionage, which has been a problem in the U.S.-China trade relationship for a long time. And, you know, as you noted, not the first indictment um, in this regard. Some of the stuff involved in these indictments is really sort of egregious, almost clumsy Corporate espionage, like you know, uh, sneaking into a trade show to literally steal equipment from a display booth, um, you know. So this <laughs> is pens, right? It's not really in the internet. um it, clumsy. I don't know, but it's really obvious, right? right. So this is kind like, of
0: get smart in a way, yeah,
2: right. Whereas some of the previous cases, ha- I think, have been more disputable in terms of whether there was really an intent to steal or whether you know that was really what was going on, but. So there's a a broader issue there of corporate espionage and kind of unfair competition. And I think part of the point in policy terms um, that the U.S. is trying to send a message not only to the Chinese in the context of trade talks but to the rest of the world that these guys don't play fair. You know, we're the guys who play fair. We're trying to set fair rules. We want everybody to compete fairly and these guys don't play fair. Um, So therefore, you should not play with them. And then in the U.S.-China context, like, ha-ha, we caught you. Now you owe us one, which is a very Trumpian way of approaching things. But the other issue, which I think in many ways is the more significant message sent by these indictments at this particular moment, is that this was going on, you know, in the context of a big confab, which we'll talk about in the next segment – in Munich, between American, European, Chinese, a whole lot of other international officials, and Huawei and China were major, major subjects there. Um, so the Secretary of Defense Asper gave a whole lecture there, basically about the threat from China. Nancy Pelosi said that working with Huawei was like quote choosing autocracy over democracy on the information highway." And so the policy message here is that working with Huawei is is basically going against our values, that we are in a geopolitical – it's not just a geopolitical competition. It is a clash of systems. It's a clash of values and you have to choose sides. Are you with us or against us? Now, as you noted, the U.K. has tried to thread the needle by allocating to Huawei components of their 5G infrastructure that they argue are less sensitive or you know, less vulnerable. But I'm not sure that it's so easy to draw those lines. And I also think that opening that door, even a crack from the perspective of the Trump administration, is too far because other European countries are likely to push that door Even more widely open.
0: Yeah, Ben, that that leads leads neatly into the question I wanted to ask you, which is that there are obviously points of friction between the United States and lots of countries who are either using or open to using Huawei's products. But the UK issue is probably the the biggest one, not just because they're it's so prominent in the press, but because they are our closest intelligence partner. I mean, these are really sister services when we talk about, you know, uh, NSA and GCHQ or the CIA and MI6. And, other well, parts and, they, of,
2: and Esper also really threatened the Brits and the other Europeans saying, we're going to stop sharing certain kinds of intelligence with you if you go down this route. Which
0: road. was, yeah, so precisely my question. So I guess one way of asking that even more pointedly than I was going to do it, as Tammy just put it, is like, you know, is that bluff? Or not, because I mean, it is. We have talked, I mean, I don't know, countless times on the podcast about the seemingly inviolate relationship, not just among the Five Eyes, but particularly between the U.S. and the U.K. To the point where, as we've said before, you know, the NSA was ready to hand over all signals intelligence capability at a time of high terrorist threat in the U.S. When they thought that that Fort Meade itself might literally be threatened. So, can we really believe that this particular controversy, which is so obviously embedded in the whole Trump, Xi, U.S., China relationship that's about trade and all kinds of perceived grievances and trade imbalances, which many people think are actually imaginary problems, could really be threatened by the U.K.
1: deciding to use Huawei products? Right. So honestly, I think the only answer to that question that I can give is I don't know, and I think this is one of the great mysteries, and it's exactly the right question to inform thinking about that question, because I don't know what the answer to it is. Let me say the following. First of all, a fun little tidbit. The whole time Trump has been in office, people have been asking, what about RICO? What about RICO? You know, And here is an actual pattern of racketeering activities indictment. So like- just, you know, for all you people who've been looking for, like, when, when, when are we finally going to get into racketeering activity? Yeah, like, this is the indictment. Read it. Um, on a more serious note, I have been for a long time something of a skeptic of the idea of using criminal process to effectuate counterintelligence objectives against foreign state actors for cyber intrusions. I think you give away an enormous amount of sources and methods information and in order to get – you don't have custody over the people. You don't have the ability to actually punish anybody and it basically amounts to a press release that you actually give up a lot of intel capability in order to get. I make two exceptions to this general suspicion of you know these kind of – speaking indictments that do these things. One is when there is an immense communicative value to the indictment. So this is the, for example, the Mueller GRU indictment as distinct from the PLA indictment struck me as having sufficient communicative value that it was actually worth the intelligence loss that we did in order to bring it. The second one may be this, which is that there is an an overriding policy objective here, which is not simply a press release, right? It is to get foreign other countries, partner countries to take the Huawei problem seriously and to say, do you really want to be in bed with these people? You know, and the answer that this indictment proposes is – This is basically an organized criminal outfit that is stealing a lot of shit, that is, you know, doing a lot of really bad stuff. Is that who you want your IT vendors to be? And I think it is an effort to dump a lot of information about what this organization, what this company really is in relation to Chinese intelligence into the debate about whether other countries should adopt it. And I don't think that's an accident. And I think that is a plausible use of this tool. Now, will it work? I don't know.
0: I think that's really interesting. And it and it injects a whole new set of facts into the public debate. My question, though, is, don't we think that the British and the Germans and the French and anyone else already know all of this and have already factored all of it into their decision making? I mean, I had I had a conversation in about three months ago with someone at a pretty senior level in the British government about this issue. And this person's position was sort of, you know, don't lecture us about what Huawei is and what Huawei does. We know plenty well how to scan their technology to find, you know, the problems in it. We know how to segregate systems that are critical and not critical. And by the way, who is going to build the wireless, you know, next generation network for you? The United States, your technology sucks and you're not doing it and you're not going to build it for us and we're not waiting around for you. Why are they wrong?
2: Yeah, so to me, this gets to one of the overarching failures of the Trump administration in foreign policy, which is diplomacy. I mean, if they were serious, if they seriously saw this as a clash of systems that had huge stakes for global order, for America's most valued international relationships, The number one, we would have been talking about this at a technical level for a long, long time. We would have been engaged in persuasion. Remember that? This administration doesn't do that. It just lectures and bullies and threatens. And lo and behold, you know, our allies aren't very interested in hearing more from us in that tone, right? So we would have been having working-level conversations where maybe we could have come to some shared understanding about how to recognize threats, segregate systems, you know, mitigate vulnerabilities. And really, if we understood this as a clash of value systems that – we had to win this geopolitical competition, maybe we would have acknowledged that, yeah, our technological development is not up to snuff, and we could have developed some kind of transatlantic R&D program to address this need, some transatlantic corporate consortium to develop new technology. You know, this administration has been in office for three years looking at this problem and not actually doing anything about it.
1: Look, I think the simple answer to your question is it is not unreasonable because we have not created an alternative. And, you know, if there were some Motorola, Cisco consortium with Ericsson and, you know, to produce 5G infrastructure at reasonably competitive prices that was performing at that level and had the, you know, this would be a different conversation. but. You know, one of the things that the Chinese have managed to do is they've managed to make Huawei a series of very attractive products for a lot of for a lot of countries, a lot of systems, a lot of localities, a lot of a lot of entities. And and, you know, the fact that we have not put up anything substantial against that is, you know, that's our fault. So that's a nice segue into the next segment. We're, just, we're so rolling. good at this.
0: Yes, exactly. So the Munich Security Conference happened this past week. And the big takeaway, not unlike the Huawei conversation, was WTF America. Um, <laughs> more <laughs> or less. At least
2: we were there. Sure,
0: mystery guest. The I'll mystery have. guest
1: is pouring more scotch <laughs> he's now. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's pouring a lot of he's scotch. He's liberal with the hooch, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> or she. Um, I think we, we, can, we can acknowledge that the mystery guest is male. Oh, okay, that's fine, and apparently a licensed bartender
2: (laughs) (laughs) with a very generous pour. Sure,
0: I have nowhere to be. Uh,
2: Our listeners are like, "Man, this episode is devolving quickly." (laughs) It's lit
0: in more ways than one. Um, So, Tammy, the Munich Security Conference happened this past week, which is sort of, you know, it's kind of it's it's a it's a it's a almost for listeners of the podcast who know this but like it's like an Aspen security forum on steroids but in Germany. It's 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 but,
2: like it's, Geek Prom. Yeah,
0: it's like ministerial but Except
2: not. It's Geek Prom but, you know, business dress only and the late night sessions so are substantive conversations. Oh sure. It's and not like with an after It's, it's just like drunk everybody, everybody gets
1: together And has substantive conversations, and then Mike Pompeo tells them to go fuck themselves. (laughs) No, no, (laughs) wow. This
2: this year he told us we're winning. Yeah. The West is winning. Don't worry, Shane.
1: It's totally cool. He gave, I mean, basically, we all, everybody sat around and did their thing, and then Mike Pompeo tore off his shirt and pounded his chest <laughs> well, in front of everybody.
2: I, I do think, I mean, it was interesting because this is the second in a row. Uh, last year it was Vice President Pence sort of gave the, the American keynote at the Munich Security Conference and it was equally tone deaf. That one was about uh, Iran and withdrawing from the nuclear deal, and all you Europeans better get with the program. Basically, this one was just this sort of bizarre whistling past the graveyard. Like everything's awesome, we are winning, the West is winning, we're winning together. The Europeans are like, together what? You you know, you barely talk to us. So I think that the Trump administration's engagement with institutions like the Munich Security Conference is actually quite. I think, deliberately designed to be at odds. The more interesting transatlantic dynamic at Munich is about the members of Congress who come. John McCain used to bring a big bipartisan delegation every year. And they would basically do sort of congressional bilateral meetings with a whole lot of um, ministers and heads of state at Munich. The Munich conference this year, though, I think was really – uh, the overarching theme was a kind of loss of confidence or a sense of, of vacuum, or I don't know, waiting for Godot because they're all waiting to see if President Trump gets reelected and they have to deal with that for another four years. But the, the theme that the Munich Security Conference organizers developed for this conference is itself telling its westlessness.
0: Westlessness.
2: Westlessness, which they defined as a widespread feeling of uneasiness and restlessness in the face of increasing uncertainty about the enduring purpose of the West.
1: OK, so I have a question, Tammy. Yeah, That was like Elmer Fudd. If there had not been House <laughs> Are of... you Westless?
0: <laughs> I haven't swept.
1: If if there had not been—what's uh, what's that show with the swords and stuff— Game of Thrones. Uh, Game of Thrones. (laughs) Oh, my God. And there were no Westeros. (laughs) Would they they have have come come up up with with westlessness? That's an
2: excellent question because it's clearly – It's
1: not. (laughs) (laughs) No,
2: it's a a wordplay that they clearly took some relish in putting forward at the conference.
0: Well, let's talk about that though because, I mean, this is one of the big – I mean, Amanda Sloat read a a great kind of roundup of these ideas for Brookings and there was a lot of reporting on this. The Times quoted one French analyst as essentially saying – look, basically, we all think Trump is going to be reelected. And I thought he had this very interesting turn of phrase where he said, and that will show that what we've been living through was not an error, but an era.
2: Yes, great. Very quotable quote there right. from Francois. Heisberg. Right. And yeah. I thought
0: that that was – And it's <clears throat> a pun in French too. Error. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but, but I thought that was really, I mean, sort of a, a, kind of a nice little like, discreet window into this idea. And I mean, I'm, you know, I could, everyone can be a pundit and that's fine and, you know. I don't think we know anything about how the election is going to turn out, frankly. But presuming that it does, and clearly these are policymakers and thinkers who are planning for probable outcomes, one of which obviously is that you know Trump is reelected, I thought it was very telling that people saw this as saying like that what we'll realize is almost like this is like we're at, in a lagging indicator, that what we'll realize is that the fast four years of the way things have been going, if not so much been this sort of unique kind of peculiarity of Donald Trump being the president, but that there was sort of maybe a trend that was already moving in that direction. Maybe he capitalized on it, and this is where we're going. And I have to admit, I was also skeptical of that, only in so far as look, I can remember. George W. Bush being reelected and all the talk being this is the end of U.S. relationships with allies and the United States is on its own. And then, you know, Barack Obama was elected and they gave him the Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, there's a pendulum. Out of relief.
2: They gave it to him out of relief.
0: Right. But there's there's a pendulum effect to this. And I guess my my big question to all of this is to, to what degree is this? you know, just sort of anxiety in the moment or are people really putting their finger on something that says, no, really the fundamental relation, the nature of the alliance and of the usefulness of the West has changed? And if that is true, that is bigger than Donald Trump.
2: Well, I think the questions that have been asked about the durability of certain post-World War II institutions And their significance to the challenges of today. Those are real questions like what does the European Union mean when it has expanded to this degree and it is struggling to kind of keep publics on board with increasingly centralized policymaking. We've talked about that before on the podcast. That's a real issue. Right. But I think that when it comes to what does Trump's reelection mean in this context, I think there are two things. One is. U.S. policy, right? If U.S. policy just um, goes in a certain weird direction that it dismisses alliances and, you know, bullies and threatens for four years, but then it's kind of snaps back, then the Europeans can handle that. They can kind of wait it out. And so trends that already exist, like, the Europeans struggle to develop their own stronger voice and presence on major geopolitical issues like the war in Libya, for example, or, you know, Macron's idea of having an independent European defense capability. I mean, those things are there. They would probably be there anyway, but they're not necessarily going to take great leaps forward if Trump ends up being an aberration. But if Trump is reelected, then all those things will move forward and Europe will sort of start to spin off in its own orbit in a certain way, or it will have to figure out how to deal with global problems on its own. But the second issue that I think comes through from Amanda's great um, review and some of the other uh, news out of music is the implications that Europeans seem to have to see in a Trump reelection for their faith in America and their faith in democracy. So even when Europeans have had questions about their own ability to overcome, you know, ugly nationalism or um, racism or, you know, other things like that, they have seen the United States as kind of the ultimate manifestation of the values that we all share. And even though we screw up, too, right, we always seem to figure it out in the end. And so there's this faith in America that I think is at stake, too, because if American voters elected Trump once because they were fed up or fooled or they didn't really know what they were getting, that's one thing. But if knowing everything they know now, they elect him again, that says something about the American public. It says something about the health of American democracy. And that, I think, is potentially much more devastating for the transatlantic relationship.
1: So I think the point is even deeper than that and it goes to the question of who the democrats put up against trump so if you assume for a minute that either bernie sanders will be the nominee or that the that he will be a seriously viable contender for the nominee You're actually talking about a general election that involves competing strains of anti-interventionism and isolationism, and that's really the first time we've ever had that. And Bernie Sanders, you know, makes a certain amount of sense to European social democratic sensibilities, right? They've all—major European countries all have parties that are kind of Sanders-like, right? On the other hand, for Americans to put forward a candidate like Bernie Sanders is actually a very profound statement vis-a-vis Europe because the fundamental American-European deal is we will spend the money that you get to spend on your social safety network on the defense of Europe and other allies. We don't have the kind of social safety net – that European countries do, in part because our defense architecture is so robust and large, and part of that is our commitment to allies. And so when somebody like Bernie Sanders steps up and says, you know, I'm going to create European-like social democratic architecture in the United States, a sophisticated European defense person does understand that that is not really consistent with The degree of commitment that the United States has to expansive defense commitments overseas, and Bernie Sanders is pretty upfront about that, right? He he, we we're not going to do any forever wars. We're not going to overcommit ourselves, right? So you know he's pretty clear about that. And so if you imagine a 2020 general election that's between. Trump's go fuck yourself position, right, which is I hate Europe, I hate our allies, they're all cheating us, and Bernie Sanders, I love our allies, but I'm going to spend money domestically on you know universal health care and all kinds of other things from a European perspective, there really is a a, a factor here that's the United States basically saying we don't want to play this role anymore and and that's a you know a pretty you have a pretty broad swath of the political spectrum incorporating both political parties suddenly flirting with or re- actually representing that as their public position to one degree or another.
2: I, I don't know. I think that's overblown a bit. Well, I it's think
1: intentionally. So I'm. I'm
2: okay. I but really, I think that the language of burden sharing, which is language that Trump has adopted and pushed to a ridiculous extreme, but the language of burden sharing was there long before Trump got elected. It will be there after Trump. Leaves office, even if he's there for a second term. Because that is part of a dynamic in which, you know, we went through a half century period where the United States was a catalyst, an accelerant, a subsidizer of European growth and strengthening. And that culminated in European strength and capability. And then, okay, we had 2008 which hit Europe a lot harder than it hit us, although it hit us hard as well. Now we're all recovered from that and burden sharing is on the agenda. It was going to be on the agenda. I don't think the Europeans are worried about burden sharing. I think the Europeans are worried about capriciousness on the part of the United States. I think they're worried about a United States that does not share their definition of some key global problems like climate change, like – Competition in the Arctic you know i I think those are the kinds of issues where if a Sanders you know said something radical, they would be worried, but he's not what he's saying is you know, I want an alliance of democracies, and we have to work together
1: look, let me ask you a quick question just to to isolate the point. Do you agree with me? That an American political constellation in which the Democratic Party is represented by Bernie Sanders and the Republican Party is represented by Donald Trump presents a profoundly different face to Europe than an America in which the Republican Party is represented by George W. Bush and the Democratic Party is represented by John Kerry or Barack Obama.
2: I think that the fact that there is no political appetite in the United States for that kind of liberal internationalism has been evident to Europeans for a long time. And I think, by the way, there's not a lot of public appetite in Europe for it either. And so that's a problem that we have to solve together, no matter who the president is.
0: All right. We got to solve the problem of object lessons now. Tammy, I have object go ahead, lesson. Go right ahead.
2: Well, thank you. So I wasn't here last week and I know you guys had tons of fun without me. But uh, my object is from Oscar night.
0: <gasps> we didn't get to talk about the Oscars.
2: Well, really. right. So you didn't talk about it when I wasn't here. And gosh darn it, we have to talk about the Oscars. Did you see this dress? Wait, let me see this. Did you see this dress?
0: They're both wearing dress. Oh, as a child. No, oh, I'm I about love the that. Dress. Yeah, this is. Oh, wait. I know which movie she did.
2: I'm blanking. So the movie is called For Sama. Yes, 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 yes. yes. It's a documentary about life amidst the war in Syria. Yeah. And it was up for an Oscar. It did not win. But the filmmaker, Wad al-Khatib, wore this absolutely stunning dress covered with embroidered Arabic calligraphy. And the calligraphy on the dress is actually a quote from a poem that says, we dared to dream and we will not regret dignity. And we always talk about, like, who did you wear to the Oscars, right? And the symbology of what people choose to wear to the oscars and to me this was just a a beautiful manifestation of bringing the syrian people's hopes even in the midst of war with her to the oscars and putting it in front of the world so i wanted to share that
0: it's also a killer dress it is
2: a killer dress it's
0: really really beautiful Great by
2: line. a syrian designer from aleppo
0: that's awesome uh ben do you want to go should i go next go ahead i'll do mine next um so <clears throat> i am recommending a book to listeners uh By a friend of mine and a BBC correspondent who covers the security services on both sides of the Atlantic, and this is actually kind of one of his maybe even unique uh, niches, Gordon Carrera, uh, who has a new book out called Russians Among Us, Sleeper Cells, Ghost Stories, and The Hunt for Putin's Spies. I think I have not read this yet. I am looking forward to it, full disclosure. but. Looking through it at some of the chapters and some of the newsier bits, there's a lot of really historical, interesting information here, particularly that will be interesting to listeners about the the so-called illegals, which were, of course, the inspiration for the series The Americans. Gordon kind of goes deeper into those stories and talks about the longer history as well about Russian spies in the United States— I think it's going to be really good and interesting for readers, uh, for for readers, yeah, for readers and for listeners of the podcast. Uh, Gordon actually, he puts on his bio something that I I was sitting here just thinking to myself: Is this actually true? And I think it actually is. He is the only journalist who have interviewed serving heads, serving heads of both the CIA and MI6. Ooh, which I was thinking, like you know, I've talked to like former heads of the MI6 and former heads of the CIA and current heads of the CIA. Gordon may be the only one. He may be the security unicorn. Read the security unicorn's book. (laughs) Buy it.
2: Is he going to like that you called him the security unicorn? If he's listening, he'll love it. Are are. you
0: kidding? Who wouldn't love that? Come on. (laughs) Uh, And I said the MI6, but obviously MI6. Ben, what's your object lesson?
1: So I bought a CNC carving and laser engraving machine, which reflects a long term interest in woodworking and building things. And I am going to make a very special piece of carved and laser engraved rational security swag, mm-hmm. which is going to involve
0: in your Bon Appetit test kitchen.
1: Uh, yes, exactly. So and the, the um guest. and the 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 special piece of rational security swag is going to be cut into a piece of fine hardwood and fine is, yes, and it is going to be laser engraved with <laughs> the it is going to be carved <laughs> with the rational security logo that. Shane's husband Joe That's design right. and it is going to also include a laser engraved image of the four rational security uh, hosts on the Brookings stage doing a live rational security podcast taping which you can find on our Facebook page so it is going to include is the both... I'm eating
0: a microphone yes, yes. it is um, and approve. Approve.
1: we are going to put that into a, all those things into a piece of wood and it is going to be given one week from now, to the person who uh, gives the largest contribution to Lawfare through our electronic contribution device. So if you want this unique object, which was, by the way, the first time an object lesson on rational security is available for essentially purchase, although it hasn't been created yet, give a donation to Lawfare. And uh, we will announce next week who our winner is, and by then, the object lesson in question will exist.
0: I feel like since you're using in part my image and my husband's artwork, I like I should at least get one free one for the house. Okay, Sans donation.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah, you 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 can have it. In fact, maybe I'll make <laughs> four of them. One no, for Just one like two. for each of the participants no. in rational was security. Free? One costs you whatever and, you can and afford. one for the listener who gives the largest contribution. <laughs> To Lawfare on the support Lawfare page within the next week.
0: All right. Well, we're going to hang around for
1: that. So that's going to be next week on the show. That's going to be next week. This week the object lesson is aspirational. Next week it will be in
2: cold hard cash in the flesh. You
1: are the Monty
0: Hall of
2: podcasts.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I got a deal for you. I got a deal for you too. You can stop listening because we're almost done. <laughs> Thank God. Rational security. Listeners
1: are like, Jesus. Like, God. This is African hand.
0: <laughs> Hope you've been drinking, too. Uh, law uh, Lawfare. Rational security is, of course, the production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find wooden shoes made in Ben's test kitchen engraved with your face <laughs> <laughs> on dot. <woodkitchen. laughs> <laughs> dot holland
1: oh, Shane's no. drunk people he had, a, he had a martini at lunch that in is addition not, to all that the scotch he's got going now I now. did
0: not have a martini at lunch
1: How, you had two martinis you can also follow us on Twitter
0: at RATL security you can find us on Facebook let's see
1: if you can get through the rest of the credits without
0: stumbling it's over sloppy it's sloppy
2: drunk edition no,
0: now you're making me very nervous yeah you're giving me performance anxiety. Let's I'm sorry.
2: No, let's be quiet. Just like our special My guest, God. unless Shane finished. i
0: mean a special guest. Special guest is very upset like I'm never listening you, to you. this show. <laughs> special guest is never <laughs> is never boring. coming back. <laughs> Insane. That's for sure. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. It really helps us out and helps other people find this marvelous experience. <laughs> Our audio engineers this week were Michaela Fogel and Elliot Setzer. The show is edited and produced, as always, by Jen Patya Howell. That's the
1: long-suffering Jen Patya Howell who actually <laughs> yeah, just think what this sound must have sounded like before she edited it. at least 56 <laughs> minutes suffering so far. Uh,
0: music this week by Bill Barr and Donald Trump have their new duo, The Clash.
2: Uh-huh. Oh,
0: nice. Nice little call out to the title of the show.
2: Yes, a little loop back.
0: That's right, a little loop back. Sophia Yan specializes in those as well. Um, Sophia Yan, who's going to be on
1: the Lawfare podcast later this week, talking about coronavirus in China.
0: She doesn't have it, does she? No, not yet. Dear God. She's been kidnapped. She's been—I don't know what else. I mean, the, harassed by, by Chinese security. Should she scientists? really go for the for trifecta and get coronavirus? No, she I could, think we should not. She could wish beat it.
2: Coronavirus? Nah, on she's Sophia. healthy.
0: She can beat it. She'll be fine.
2: Okay, we're so going to a dark flow. dark place.
0: <laughs> on behalf of my good friends, Demarcoff, Wittis and Ben Wittis and our special guest, who is heading for the exits. I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Go bid on that wood print. Bye.